Today on Maine Calling, meteorology in a changing climate. Sometimes it seems as though the dramatic weather just won't stop. Here in Maine, we've contended with historic flooding three times in the past two months alone. Meteorologists do their best to prepare us for all kinds of weather, but their ability to forecast everything that might happen and where has limits. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we'll learn about the science of meteorology, the network of weather balloons, radar, and other tools that help forecasters get it right. We'll get some guidance on how to best interpret weather lingo. What does it mean exactly to have a 70% chance of snow, for example? And we'll find out how the changing climate challenges meteorologists every day. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling On Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org slash learn. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. How often do you check on the weather forecast? All the time? Well, you aren't alone. Today, we check with meteorologists about how they do what they do, how they make those predictions, and then how they communicate that information with the public. We'll also talk about how climate change is affecting Maine's weather patterns and the recent storms. Joining me, Keith Carson, who's a meteorologist with News Center Maine. He specializes in forecast and climate analysis. And Donald Dumont, who's Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Gray. Of course, we invite you to join the conversation. What are your questions about how the weather is gathered, the weather forecast is gathered and disseminated? Send us an email, talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Keith and Donnie, thank you so much for joining us for the hour. Keith, I'll start with you. Um, I think that because I was a TV anchor for years and I sat on the desk next to lots of meteorologists, I was always surprised at how little the general public knows about what you do every day to put your forecast together, that meteorologists are actually reading the data and creating the maps themselves. There's not um, some sort of feed sending you maps and you're just reading the weather. Um, Tell us how you do that. How do you interpret what's um, coming out on what used to be a teletype machine, probably now on your computer screen, and turning that into a forecast that people can understand? Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. And I, I... So it's changed over the years. Um, You know, there was a time before my time where we were TV meteorologists were kind of the gatekeepers of weather information. And so you could do a four day uh, forecast or three day forecast and get away with that. Over time, as the computer model data becomes public, you can get a lot of computer model data for free online if you're interested. And a lot of people are. Um, our job has been come to really to curate and to to try to when we can beat the computer models. And so basically, my routine is probably different than Todd's and different than Dana's, who works with me at, at night. But I generally um, start just by looking at the whole 
country over the next seven days on um, the European computer model and the GFS computer model. Those are the two, um, that's an American model that we like to use just to get a feel for where they agree, where they disagree. Um, and then from there, you're trying to fine tune um, the forecast, you know, kind of based on your experience in, in forecasting this area. Um, and then you have to put graphics together and then you put makeup on and then you see the part that, you know, and I think a lot of people think that we have teleprompters like the anchors do, but um, we don't, we go up there and we just tell you the weather story the best we can and, and the amount of time that we're allotted. Donnie Keith says the computer model data. And so uh, computer models, the European and the American model he was talking about, what feeds those models? What's out there creating the models? How, how do you even start? Give us yeah. a primer. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess the best way of thinking about a weather forecast is it's a system. It's not just someone typing one thing and then, boom, I think it's going to be 35 degrees out and that's what it is. It's it's a massive system is the best way of thinking about it. The models we're talking about, you're right. They don't work if they have no data coming into them. So what's the data coming into them? Um, so you probably know most of it. Um, satellites, you know, a lot of times, you know, Keith will be on showing a cool satellite loop, what's going on. But those satellites not only give you nice visual shots of, from space of what the clouds look like, they actually give us all types of atmospheric readings. Like there are number one observational um, kind of footprint is satellites from space. And then you probably heard another one, how about radar data? Um, so radar data itself that you kind of look at, all that stuff kind of feeds into um, um, some of our models, especially what we call convective models that kind of forecast thunderstorms in, like, in the summer months, a couple hours out, all that data is feeding into these models. And then weather observations, surface weather observations, you kind of look, hey, what's, what's the jet port? Those weather ops, all those go into um, our weather models. Um, so we take all this data and then it, it goes in and pretty much every six hours, we have these massive supercomputers that take all this observational data in and they do billions and billions of mathematical kind of physics calculations. And they give us the output that you can actually access online that the Keith was talking about. So, and that just never stops because weather never stops. So everything keeps on going and going and going and going. Um, so that's kind of like the basic of it, of, 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 of the data observations, then the models, and then the humans interpret the models to give the actual forecast. So you can look at it and make decisions of what you're going to do in your daily routines. Donnie, it's interesting to me, and maybe this is because I'm old school, you said satellites and radar. You did not say weather balloons. Do we still use weather balloons? We do. Yeah, I missed one. Very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we do use the weather balloons still. Um, we have, uh, I believe, 86 or 88 launch sites in the United States of America. But I love weather balloons because it's like one international thing that we can all agree we need. Weather data is needed. So we always tell people we're letting the balloon go. Someone over in China is letting the balloon go. Someone in down Argentina is letting one go. In Canada, over in Europe, we're all letting the balloon go exactly the right time because, like you said, we want instantaneous reading of the um, atmosphere. So um, the weather balloons are important in the summer for um, like localized convection, how unstable the atmosphere is. But what they really do for most of the year across the planet is they actually calibrate that satellite data we were talking about. So, for example, we might say the, the jet streams overhead is 100 knots. That's what the satellite thinks. And we let a balloon go and I go, no, it's actually 130 knots. 
So it actually kind of calibrates that. Um, so they're still very important in this day and age, and we do still release them twice a day, every day. Keith, you mentioned that you try to beat the computer model. So give us an example of when your hunch, your knowledge of Maine weather has helped you beat the computer model. Well, first of all, I'm sure Donnie would agree, it's getting harder to beat the models. Um, <clears throat> it used to be easier and they get better. You know, every couple of years, there's usually an upgrade that's done. There's a lot of um, tinkering and programming that goes on to make them better. But I mean, I think a good example where at least you know the right model to pick is the snowstorm or snow events. Snowstorm to me seems bigger, but that happened this morning. So as of Friday, um, <clears throat> and especially leading up to it on Thursday, the European model had basically a broad three to six, four to seven inches of snow over southern Maine and the coastline. The GFS more or less had the storm missing to our south um, a couple runs in a row. And so you had a choice here, uh, you know, on Friday, you're either telling people it's going to snow on Monday morning or you think it's going to miss the south. And I think this is a scenario where um, the European model it used to be used to be consistently the better model that gap is closed. Um, there are still times where I trust it more than the American GFS model. And I think this was an example. So we put out a map on Friday that was three to six inches of snow, even though the GFS model verbatim was 0.5 or one inch of snow um, in a lot of spots. So I think that's there's moments like that. Um, and even the freezing drizzle event that we had, I, you know, I talked to National Weather Service, we have a little chat group um, there wasn't initially supposed to be that much freezing rain along the coast, our last event, but we could see that the temperatures were much colder than the models thought they were at that time. And that was a key that something was wrong. So sometimes you're just checking, hey, this, this model six hours from now thought it was going to be 32. It's actually 25. What does that mean for us going forward? All right. Something else the audience might be interested in is when you're forecasting snow amounts, that is really tricky, isn't it, Keith? Because it depends on how wet and sticky the snow is, right? Yes, and also I, I jokingly say this, <laughs> we're not as good as you think we are. So, so what I mean by that is like, I'll hear people say, oh, you guys have, you have three to six and another station, they're way different. I'll check the other station's map, it'll be four to seven. And I'll say, <laughs> guys, you know, the difference between three to six and four to seven on a standard uh, snow event would, is 0.1 inches of liquid. Right. So like the liquid to snow um, ratio. So you would never ask during the summer, hey, are we going to get, you know, 0.9 inches of rain or one inch of rain? There's, it's 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 within the, the, the noise of verification. And so um, it's the most important thing we do in, in local news up here. The snowfall map is what people care about. And my theory is all they see is the top number anyways. If you put out an eight to 12, go to Hannaford and you hear we're getting a foot of snow. Nobody, nobody cares about, about the aid, you know? Right. So when it's the dry, light, fluffy snow, it's going to pile up a lot more than what we had overnight, where it's going to be a lower amount, but it is going to be really hard to shovel. Um, Donnie, let me ask you about um, how the broader climate changes are making it, or I should put this as a question, is it making it more challenging to do that daily or weekly forecast when so many things are these days historic and i'm using air quotes when i say that i mean, yeah, are you, I mean or do you have models that are telling you something and you think i've never seen that before and do i actually say that to people now 
Right. There's, there was a, it's interesting to bring that up because uh, if, if you don't know, we actually do forecast coastal flooding too. So we actually forecast the water level of the ocean. Um, so it used to be the old, like when we came in, you know, meteorologists, you're young, like the old timers will tell you, and never forecast a record. <laughs> and that was what they used to say, never forecast a record. So now we're like, only forecast a record when you have really high confidence that record is going to be broken. So we're kind of changing, um, you know, the, yeah, sometimes you got to forecast records. All the data is pointing at it. You got to go for it. So, um, you know, cause we were forecasting a record for the highest water level ever recorded since 1912 in the Gulf of Maine, uh, well, Portland at least. Um, so, you know, that's kind of difficult for forecasters to do, you know, like that takes a lot of confidence to say, this, this is going to be it, you know? So, um, so there's that aspect of it is saying that, you know, this, this can be, this is going to be really bad. And then you can say, is it really going to be this bad two days in a row or three days in a row? This is crazy, you know? But, um, so I guess getting over that mindset, trust in the data, trust in the science of, you know, we, we do have models that are, you know, like they don't really care about climate change. They care about variables. So if the atmosphere supports it, they're going to go for it. Um, there is, that's not hundred percent true. We do actually have this kind of climate based stuff or temperature that can kind of keep the models in check, which is actually really good. We call that bias correction. Um, and we're, we, we've been doing this like for a long time, like a long time. So that's taking those observations, correcting, you know, bias, correcting the models, give us an output based off climate or what usually happens. So it helps us become more accurate. Um, but sometimes, you know, you gotta, you gotta go got to go big is what we like to say. Um, but, you know, baseline wise is climate change. Like, how's it, you know, it, it, we're really like last summer was a good example. It was just, we just kept on seeing this thing called precipital water. That's really how much moisture is in the atmosphere column itself. And it was just like, like it's this models of this showing like two inches, which is crazy. That's a lot for us in Maine. It was like, it was like the whole month of July. It was almost like every other day it was that high. And it was just, but that's what the data was and the models were showing it. So we, the models do, they do forecast it. They do account for it. Um, it's just, if you have enough confidence to go for it is really what it comes down to. And Keith, how do you um, talk about this? You know, I know that every time there's some sort of um, historic, whether it's a, a flooding event here in Maine or whether it's wildfires out West, the first question that many journalists ask is, is this a result of climate change? And, and most, um, meteorologists will answer, well, you can't attribute any one storm to climate change, but the climate is changing. And I think that that's sometimes kind of a frustrating thing to hear, um, especially when there's one after another, after another, after another. So tell me how you think about what you do every day, which is forecasting the forecast that people are using for their farms and their baseball games and their road trips um, in terms of what you understand about climate. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm normally in the camp of you've got to be careful mixing, you know, weather events with climate and unless there are the studies are, are there. Um, and, and so what Donnie just talked about, precipitable water, that's one of our better climate change links. We know as the climate has warmed that we have um, more heavy downpour events and it makes sense. You know, uh, um, it can hold more moisture. Other times I, I think, and this is where I have to say, this is my opinion, not the opinion of New Center Maine. I think sometimes it can go the other way and every storm 
or, you know, yeah, uh, storms can be attributed to climate change that really are just anomalous storms to begin with. And one of my frustrations is seeing um, national news calling everything a bomb cyclone, even if it's not the technical definition for bombogenesis, which is a real meteorological thing. And so there's this whole um, other side of it where I think uh, it can be droned on too much. I think the ones that we just had where we broke those water levels, those are good ones to say, hey, look, literally, if the sea level rise didn't exist, we wouldn't have broken this all-time water level record. And that's that to me is is a is a, is a better place to be than to say every storm um, that is strong is necessarily um, tied to climate change. It has to be ones we know via the, the science um, are correlated with them. So, Keith, I'm so glad you used the phrase bombogenesis because I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, there are a lot of um, relatively new terms that are. Um, when I say relatively, maybe in the past decade that we're hearing a lot more of, and that's one of them. Uh, tell me about the use of these terms. Are these terms that meteorologists used to use, but didn't put out in the public, and now we, you say, what the heck, they can handle it? I think so. So bombogenesis, actually, um, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, Donnie, is that one that's in the like the AMS glossary of terms? Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm trying to find the year right now, but yeah, the yeah. Bombogenesis is like from like the late seventies. I mean, it's, it's, it's not new <laughs> for us. So, but bomb cyclone is, that's just cool and new, but it's based on the same definition as a bombogenesis. So yeah. That's yeah, just so cool and new. Yeah, exactly. So bombogenesis is a real thing and it has a criteria and I hope I'm getting this right off the top of my head. I think a storm has to drop 24 millibars, which is a measure of pressure in 24 hours or less. So it's, it's a rapid strengthening of a storm. Um, but but then bomb cyclone is kind of like slang. Um, and same thing with like polar vortex is a thing that it, but it maybe it's being misapplied at times. And there's a whole weird conversation about the, the, we, the stronger polar vortex is, the less likely we are to see it in the United States. It's, it's a relatively weak polar vortex that breaks a piece off and it moves into uh, you know, the Midwest or the Northeast. So I, I think there is a little, um, I don't know if sensationalism is the word. It just, there's just slang terms that, that get kind of, they get pulled in and people use them more often and then anchors start using them. And me here, I, I'm pretty strong about not having bomb cyclone a part of our, uh, at least the shows I'm in. Um, and sometimes we'll have a national story and they'll use it and I'll go, ah, <laughs> like, they, they said it and there's nothing we can do about it. But, um, I, I feel like Mainers are really not here for the sensationalist aspect of it. They just want to know if the storm's going to be strong and what it's going to look like. Yeah. So you think that can kind of get in the way of communicating with the public? I do. Yeah. Because, because like sometimes there can be a really strong storm that's too far offshore and doesn't matter that much. So it might be a, it might be a bomb, but it, it's not a big deal. Meanwhile, we could get a relatively weak, um, you know, warm front that's yet sets up over us for 12 hours and we get a ton of snow. So, I mean, I, I think it's more about, to me, it's more about the impacts. doesn't mean you won't geek out sometimes. I feel like sometimes I'm talking to myself on TV about how excited <laughs> I am about, about a feature and everybody is at home. Like what's the bus forecast tomorrow? I don't, you know, but I think that being excited is okay. I just, I don't want it being used to make people afraid of the weather when it's really stuff that, you know, more or less we can, we can handle and have for a long time. Well, we are talking about 
the weather on Maine Calling. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're talking about how to forecast it. What are your questions for our meteorologist? You can send an email to talk at mainepublic.org. Make it a quick email, please. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. We are learning about the science of meteorology and how it's changing. With me, two meteorologists, Donnie Dumont with the National Weather Service in Gray and Keith Carson with News Center Maine. You can share your questions for them, your comments by email, talk at mainepublic.org. Comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. An email here from Jay, he writes, how do hyper-local radar and algorithm-based forecasting apps like Apple Weather or Dark Sky affect or influence your work? Okay, Keith, it's your chance to um, let us know whether we should be checking our phone because it's really fun to see exactly what it's going to be uh, at 3 o'clock two days from now. <laughs> yeah, Donnie and I have the same smirk here. So so I will start by saying that I, I obviously don't um, look at them. I, most of them... Um, are straight model data or blended model data, meaning um, there's not a human input. There's just, okay, this is the European model verbatim or it's the GFS verbatim or it's some blend that they've come up with. Um, my, my sense is they do pretty well in a 24-hour time period. Like you talk about hour by hour forecast, they're, they're going to do pretty well telling you, okay, it's, it's you know 11.27 right now. I bet if you look in the app and it tells you what the temp's going to be at 5.00, in Portland, it's going to be close, a degree or two. Um, where it gets messy is, you know, my wife will do this. God love her. She'll say, um, okay, we have a vacation in 12 days. The app says, and I was like, garbage. There's no, I mean, if we, we're not withholding for fun. Like we don't forecast seven days because we don't want to give you any more. It's because the uncertainty at that point is so high that it's pointless. And so I think that's where it gets dangerous. If you want to look at it the next 24 hours, I think it's okay. I would argue that um, NWS is a better uh, resource even for that. But when it gets way out there, now it's just meeting a demand that people have, but it's not congruent with our abilities at this point. Um, Donnie, what do you want to add to that? Uh, Yeah, mostly the same. I I will say that some of them, I do like that people are looking at them, especially if they're about ready to go canoeing or kayaking or a little baseball game, because guess what they're doing? They're actually taking the radar, like right now that hour, like they've got the instant, you know, radar and then something's tracking towards them. Like things change, the atmosphere is dynamic, but if there's like a squall line or cold front coming through, oh, it's going to be here in three hours, thunderstorm, they put a big thunder on there. It'll keep people from going and doing those things. And I think that's a good thing because there is that real-time instantaneous information that's feeding to them. So if it helps them make a good decision, I like it for that fact. But yeah, like, yeah, you get further out in time and you're just taking one model run and throwing it out there. And, and people are banking on like their wedding like, dinner outside on, you know, Booth Bay Harbor on a six days in advance, you know, <laughs> like knocking the tent. It's a bad idea. Um, so yeah. So there, there, there are pros and cons to them, definitely. But they're, they're powerful in the near-term forecast. Uh, Keith, would you say, um, how, how many days in advance would you say the weather forecast is really accurate? I had heard in the past that for Maine, and it's different for different states, 
really about three days because so there's so many variables. And then after that, it's really um, your best guess, to use uh, Joe Kupo's old favorite phrase. My best guess after this is, um, is that about right? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the pattern. So some patterns are more complicated than others. I feel pretty good generally four to five days in advance. But again, what exactly are we talking about? Are we to Donnie's point, like, Hey, I, I've got a wedding outside, you know, 3 PM. And it's a day where we feel like there's going to be pop-up thunderstorms. Well, I don't know if it's going to be one or 4 PM, but broad strokes. Um, I think four or five days is pretty good. I think seven, you've got an idea of big events. Um, and then outside of that gets a little tough. I'd say past seven days, all you can really see is really large scale patterns. Like, hey, we're going to be colder than average in the east. Like temperature forecasting 10 to 15 days is a fairly accepted thing, but it's anomalies. It's saying, hey, we're going to be, you know, five degrees below average during this time period. Um, so I think, I, and I think it's gotten better. I mean, Kupo, it's funny you mentioned Kupo because I was here the first time and uh, we had to do a little bit of a, a battle about he wanted to stick with the four day forecast. And I was like, we got to move to seven. And what we ended up compromising on was we had four days that showed, and then the next three would come in later to signal that they were not the same level of certainty as the first, the first four days was. George on Facebook writes, one question as to how we got caught unawares in the bad storm for the inland areas. Reports began the Friday evening before forecasting. 60 mile per hour winds on the coast and 40 miles per hour inland. The reports never changed nor worsen. By Monday afternoon, the winds inland had reached 80 miles per hour. That's an enormous difference and a dangerous one. Did we have a hurricane which was not forecast and still hasn't been acknowledged? All of inland Maine was devastated. It was a true emergency. So, Donnie, um, talk us through. It is, is George's recollection, recollection accurate? And if so, was that a hurricane? And, and how was it that wind speed was uh, not accurately forecasted? Um, I would say that, well, it wasn't a hurricane number one. It was, uh, what we call extra tropical storm. And this is, we're not going to get into that discussion, but definitely not a hurricane. Um, you could say the hurricane force winds, you know, um, there were some localized gusts, you know, on the, uh, up in the higher terrain that were of that speed. Um, I will say that the wind forecast overproduced a little bit, but it actually wasn't that much. Um, what people need to realize is um, wind impacts ecosystems differently. Um, for example, we're, we're coming up, we're trying to learn more about how wind impacts on trees. So what people don't really care about the wind speed is they care if a tree falls down and takes out their power. That's, that's what really matters is the impact on the trees themselves. So we're finding out that we can have the same exact wind speed. Um, well, there's two things. There's directional. So southerly directional, southeastern directional, um, we're, we're learning uh, from utility partners and such forth that um, this because we have our, our average strong wind speeds from the northwest up here. Uh, so there's theory going on that trees are more susceptible of snapping when it comes from opposite direction, a, a greater force. Um, there's also the theory of, of returnable frequency. So on the coast, if you remember before that storm, we had a, quite a few wind storms. Um, and the impacts were decent on the coast, but the wind speeds were still stronger on the coast than they were inland. But the impacts were so much greater for the power outages further inland. That's because those trees don't usually get those 
winds of that strength as often as they do in the coastline. So when they do get them, there's more standing dead, kind of like weak trees that are diseased. When they do get those speeds, they all come down. So this is, we also had a similar event, if everybody remembers, in 2017, October. Those winds pushed further inland too, and it was very devastating. Um, but on the coast, it was, it was bad everywhere because they were strong. But the point is, is that it's not only if we miss the wind speed by 10, 15 miles per hour. The point is, if you get the wind speed in a different place from a different direction, it could be way more impactful, even if the wind speed was exactly the same that it was on the coastline. So it's it's a complex thing when it comes to um, winds and impacts in, in Maine. We'll go to Carl, who's calling from Nova Scotia, Briar Island in Nova Scotia. Hi, Carl. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, I just wanted to comment that I live on the other end of the Gulf of Maine. If you think of Provincetown, Cape Cod, I live on Briar Island, you know, and then the Gulf of Maine is just right there. Anyways, we had those two storms, too. We had a lot of tree damage and, and hurricane force winds. And actually, we get those winds just about every winter. Um more than we do from the tropical storms that come up the coast, but um, and we we had high tides here too, but not as I, I listen to Maine news because I'm a Mainer um, from Freeport originally, and um, I know you guys really took a beating down there. My my main question is, I can remember about 15 years ago we had a huge huge tide here. It w- there was no storm. It was calm. And and I remember even down where my mother lived in Freeport, the tide was the biggest. It was just huge, and just flooded everything. And 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 I, I I've never researched it to find out what caused that. And I was I'm just wondering if you recall that. Do either of you recall what he's talking about? About 15 years ago, an extreme high tide. Oh, man, testing my memory here. Um, so that would be. 2010 time frame yeah 2009 okay. 2010 yeah okay i would have been just coming in the first time here um i'm trying to think so but he said it was calm that's what throws me off because didn't we have a big storm dawn in 2009 um but oof. my 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 meteorologists are both looking up data right now for you carl i can see them both <laughs> typing away um yeah. if it was calm it was just a you know it was obviously a king tide period you know, which we get during the winter, usually our highest sample tides, which is, um, that's a different thing, but I would really love to have that question talking about how we get coastal flooding. Um, but we can well, come back. Well, Donnie, oh, is a king tide because it's a full moon that's when the moon is closest to the um, earth in its elliptical pattern. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. But there's different ones. Usually they coincide with the highest ones or, or strongest in the winter months. Um, you know, it was, where why we usually get in more trouble I and mean, we get high astronomical tides you know in the summer too every maine has a very interesting tidal cycle as you can imagine we're you know we have some of the biggest tides um in in the world um so um yeah but it can be a new moon or a full moon and um yeah but it's it's the the tide variation is everything when it comes to coastal flooding in maine keith yeah, I'm still trying to find this. Now this is going to bother me. I'm still trying to find this event. But yeah, I mean, um, obviously, the, the we, we are at the point now where we have king tides that cause problems in low-lying areas here. And, um, you know, Miami is well known for having big problems with their king tides, too. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, 
the where the tide is makes a huge difference when it comes to the impacts of a storm, much like Donnie talked about wind um, forecast too. Like if you've got a three foot storm surge, but your tide is astronomically low, it's a whole different ball game compared to it just timing out wrong with, uh, with a high tide. And similarly, he mentioned the wind speed situation. I remember a couple of weeks ago that we have so many wind storms that they all blend together for me, but we had a, we had a wind gust in Portland of 62 or 63 miles an hour. And we had only 40,000 power outages uh, from CMP. And that, that shocked me. It seems so low. Um, usually you think about 60 miles an hour and you're going to be over 100,000 or something. So it just showed something about that event, whether the wind direction was a little different, the trees, um, you know, the ground was frozen so the trees couldn't be uprooted. There's all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of variables there. But I can't. I cannot find what this what this tide was, so I'll have to keep working on that. <laughs> well, Carl, thanks for your call. We'll move on. We'll go to um, Bruce calling from Little Cranberry Island. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to ask a question about why such a difference in the last two major storms we had on the, was it, the 10th and the 13th? The, the tides on Wednesday were 11-8. And we had a huge surge that day. Saturday, we had 12-foot-8 tides, and we had close to the same high tide, but no surge. So what was the difference in those two storms when they were the same direction and the same amount of wind? Um, I can take that. Um, well, we did have surge in both events, so if you were... Um, the difference up in, you say, Cranberry Island, um, there was a slightly different wind direction, so you could have been locally sheltered from the surge. Um, the first one, the 10th, was, uh, so there's two things that were going on, especially up towards Penobscot Bay area. Um, so the first one, the peak uh, surge aligned exactly with the high tide, actually further up the main coast, so it was actually mid-coast to Penobscot Bay. Um, it was perfect what we call alignment. That means your peak surge happened right at high tide. So it was like the worst case scenario. That wind direction was more out of like a southeast direction. The January 13th one, the peak high tide coincided with peak surge actually across southern Maine. So that's why the Portland, Cumberland, York counties got it the worst um, for the January 13th one. The wind direction was actually more easterly east northeasterly further up the coast so maybe where you were in cranberry island you were a little protected um, from that wind direction so the surge didn't get in and impact you as much that in addition to the fact that um, the peak surge uh, reached you just after high tide so the water levels were not as high and as damaging further north of the january 13th as they were in southern maine so you can see a couple hours makes a really big difference when it comes to coastal flooding and it, we, we harp about a coastal flood alignment and everything has to line up perfectly. And unfortunately for Maine, it lined up perfectly twice in on the 10th and 13th. It was really, really bad luck. That's the best way of saying it. Bruce, thanks so much for your call. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but first we have to say goodbye to Keith. Um, Keith Carson, you have like a job, uh, um, you know, a forecaster <laughs> prepare or something like that. <laughs> Yes, but, I do. And you know, honestly, this is more out of respect for my uh, directors and producers that if they see me on a phone call at 1155, they're going to get pretty nervous for the noon show. So uh, I appreciate you having me that I will, uh, I will have to duck out. 
Um, but but Donnie's staying with us, and uh, hopefully we'll be hearing from um, state climatologist Sean Burkle in just a minute. So stay with us. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. Our topic today, meteorology, what goes into predicting the weather, how our climate's changing in Maine, and how to effectively communicate the weather to the public. With me is Donnie Dumont with the National Weather Service. You can join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. So uh, we will go to Jamie, who's calling from Peaks Island. Hi, Jamie. Go ahead. Uh, hi. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I remember a while back, oh, 10, 15 years ago, I used to hear the terms El Nino or La Nina, you know, uh, being influencing, being influencers on long-term winter storms. And I just have not heard that term lately. I was just wondering what happened to it? Uh, and maybe is that because global warming has become more of an influence? And uh, I'll hang up. Thank you. Donnie, go ahead. Uh, well, I will tell you, we use that term all the time. Like we still talk about it. We uh, look at it um, when we're doing um, kind of longer range, which all looks how what the season is going to be at. So, um, you know, in professional meteorology, maybe it's not front and center in media articles and stuff like that. But um, it is a huge driver um, for our seasonal outlooks. And, um, you know, if you ever go to, I suggest you go to Climate Prediction Center. Um, and we do, uh, if you go to that website, we do have uh, pretty much winter outlooks and they talk all about that the whole entire time in them. So they are still drivers and we still look at them when we're doing our seasonal outlook. So they are mm. front and center. And, and what are we in right now? Are we in either one, Donnie? Well, yeah, we are in a uh, pretty much what we call a strong El Nino um, right now. And um, I will tell you right at the bat, um, in New England, historically, uh, we do not have strong what we call correlations with El Nino, La Nina compared to other parts of the country. So um, it's kind of complex to get the winters um, right. But I will say that their uh, El Nino um, usually has a pretty strong correlation, a strong El Nino that is, of being well above normal temperatures uh, for the winter months. And that is verifying right now. And that's why our seasonal outlook was kind of heavily, had a high probability above normal temperatures. And unless something drastically changes, we are definitely going to meet that because we're running well, well above normal this winter. Mm. And is that just for winter? Or is that going into spring and summer as well? Uh, yeah, El Nino will last right through the spring and into the early summer, and then it'll just start to start to weaken. So um, um, I didn't look at the correlations of the spring months as much um, compared to winter of uh, the cold anomaly uh, and warm anomalies. But um, in general, I will tell you, it's very difficult for us not to forecast an above normal winter in our seasonal outlook right now. It's because it's because of the background changing of the warming of the climate compared to our normal averages. We'll go to Ken calling from Arousic. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, what Something that was said a few minutes ago uh, is of great interest to us in Arousic. Um, we're just, uh, what you were talking about, the correlation between wind speed and number of power outages. In Arousic, we're just finishing uh, building a town-owned fiber internet system, and we're very uh, interested in what, how we might be able to correlate um, weather statistics 
with expectations of damage to the um, fiber system, which runs on, you know, it runs on all the power poles. So what, how would you um, uh, project damage based on weather statistics? Um, we don't actually specifically do that in the National Weather Service. Um, we kind of, uh, most of the time, if you don't know, our, our, our big utility companies, they actually do uh, contract out weather support and there actually are um, private um, kind of companies and universities who are working on that, exactly that question of trying to not only based on the weather input coming into it to actually model and predict the power outages. Um, so they, they do do that. Um, and there are models based on that. Um, and quite a few coming up actually. So that is, that is the way everything is going. So you're asking like meteorology and it's where's it going in the future is, you know, yeah, there's the actual numerical values of like, okay, 60 miles per hour. Well, what does that mean? What is the impact? So let's start to model what the impacts are. So that's that's the future we've been on for the last five years, and we continue to kind of move forward in the weather enterprise to answer those questions you're asking. That reminds me, um, Ken, thanks uh, for your call. That reminds me, Donnie, of something I wanted to ask you. When we hear a forecast um, that says a 70% chance of snow or a 30% chance of rain, what does that mean? How do we interpret that? percentage does that mean sitting here at my house if 30 percent chance in rain there's a one in three percent chance it's not going to rain that yeah it's probably not going to rain but maybe take your rain jacket if you're going outside yeah it, it's kind of interesting like we call it probably a precipitation or pop and it, it really depends what we're talking about so it depends on um you know if it's showery in nature or is it like a long range day six forecast for like a big nor'easter or something coming up the coast so um in general as the further you're out you get in time it's more of a, a a skill forecast meaning how confident we in that storm to actually hit us like the big big storm that's going to hit the whole entire state um so you can see like sometimes on the future day four if they're the same you know 40 percent chance of snow it's very different than a 40 percent chance of snow showers and that's how you can kind of get in your mind what it means because um snow in general is like can be like kind of widespread snow and eventually as you get closer in time you'll see like okay day two forecast oh now it's 80 percent. day one now it's 95 that's 100 so you know like the storm is coming confidence is coming you're going to get hit by it and then there's showery precipitation like more more often in the summer months um that's literally there's just going to be these like spotty showers out there so what's the probability of that that rainstorm actually kind of hitting me on the head well, it's probably only 30%, but if you add all the towns up like surrounding you, it's probably a lot higher probability one of those towns is going to get it. So just look for that word shower. That really helps you out. Okay. We'll go to Ed, who's calling from Lyman. Hi, Ed. Go ahead. Hi. Now, this has less to do with the science of meteorology than with communicating meteorology to the public. Is there any chance of replacing the terms uh, wind chill and heat index in public forecasts with something like effective temperature to um, to make it clear that these are it's not an illusion that these conditions actually affect the body uh, physiologically as if the temperature really were what you know 110 above or 25 below or something yeah so 
there is some talk of that and we're actually even coming up with like these new indices like one of them is called heat risk um and then it's just a, a simple you know like color code you know like purple red you know orange and yellow and where you kind of find like what the temperature means in this heat risk um so it's just yeah so take out the numbers and the terminology don't quite most people don't understand like what heat index mean they kind of make it kind of more simple this is a risk of heat stroke and then it's high today you know it's high it's red um just to um kind of make it like like you said better effectively communicate so we are actually experimenting with that right now in the national weather service so uh, there's a lot of work um, if you don't know there's there's tons and tons of work in the national weather service uh, where we team up with social scientists now we're trying to answer all these questions um, so, cause we're not the expert or meteorologists, so we're really bringing in a lot of social scientists doing a lot of research and finding out and they're, they're feeding us information to make our products better, be, better be able to communicate effectively. Ed, uh, thanks for your call. Um, uh, we were talking earlier about terms like bombogenesis and Steve says, I think you could add the term atmospheric river to a new catchphrase I hear used more and more often these days. I see you nodding. Yeah, again, nothing new. Um, <laughs> atmospheric rivers and meteorology have been around for a long, long time. Um, some people, like, they actually got their terminology started actually in the Pacific. Um, so they're more heavily used, the atmospheric river. People used to call them pineapple expresses and stuff like that. But they're not just in the Pacific. So atmospheric river events do happen on the East Coast, too. Um, so we had a historical atmospheric river one um, on December, guess what, 18th. Um, so these are indices that we've had historically for a long time and we look at them and use them and it helps us actually kind of elevate the risk of flooding. Um, you know, so yes, that is that if you're hearing it, it it's been around. So I'm saying it might be getting popular, but it's nothing new. An email here from Stephen, how to have weather drones improved our ability to forecast weather and how do you see them continue continuing to contribute to the future of meteorology? <laughs> uh, not too much yet. I mean, I could see some future utility with them. I will say that when to the, like right now, when we're doing damage surveys for like tornado tracks and microbursts and stuff like that, guess what? We really like drones. So there's, there's the immediate implementation of that. Um, yeah, but drones are really important because, um, we, the you people are using them a lot for very important stuff things and guess what drones are very sensitive to weather, <laughs> weather. So, <laughs> but yeah it would be but the more use of them and yeah we could get a lot of a great feed of information that that's in its infancy stage i would say right now but um just like airplanes so airplanes we've always had you know temperature pressure sensors on them they take off and we get the data but drones are a, a whole new platform that we can get information from. But it's also actually making more work for us because more people want to know what the weather is. And they're very sensitive when it comes to weather. So that, that is a new forecasting challenge. Here's an email from Tony. Will advancements in computer technology and processing speeds help extend forecasts? Or is there just a limit to how far we can accurately predict the weather? No, it's a real good question. I mean, historically speaking, the answer to that question is absolutely computing speed has really um, made it leaps and bounds of our ability to forecast further into the future. There's definitely talk among the modelers, like have we reached that critical point where computing capacity doesn't really matter anymore, meaning we have enough to do all the calculations in a speedy time or we're kind of there. 
Um, so yeah, there's a lot more to, we're really just tweaking things um, in the physics side and data uh, simulation processes. Well, that means taking the data quickly and, and ginning up the models faster um, is that part. And then the newest, newest thing, which is coming, um, which is going to take away a lot of this computer capacity that we need is AI. Um, so we, that is coming quickly and it takes, it needs way less comp computational power for those to work, those AI weather models. Donna asks, and this is probably a pretty quick question for you, Donnie, do El Nino and La Nina always alternate one year after another? I'm trying to plan for my fuel oil usage for next year. Uh, they do not alternate. Um, sometimes you can like, for example, before this um, El Nino we had, we had three winters straight of a La Nina. Um, so, and sometimes you have, we call it Enso neutral, which means La Nada, we say, um, meaning there's, there's no, there's none. Um, so there's a, there is a really good website on um, Climate Prediction Center. You just Google that and do El Nino. You can actually see it yourself and it, we track it all and you get back to 1950 and you can see like what winters were what and you'll see that there's, there are definitely, it, it does eventually kind of go up and down. Yeah. So we will go through a cycle, but the cycle could take three years. Sometimes it takes one year. Sometimes it takes five years. It's just variable. And what's that website again? Uh, you, you can just type in Climate Prediction Center. Climate Prediction uh, Center. Yeah, in your search bar, it'll come up. And this put, yeah, El Nino or something, it'll come up. All right. Well, I'm going to end with an email here from Scott. Scott writes, French toast emergency. That's what my wife calls a winter storm warning. Why? Well, thanks to the media hype, people hit the grocery store and wipe out the bread, milk, and eggs. What else do you make with that? And Scott, look carefully in carts. It's not bread, milk, and eggs. It's potato chips and beer. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for that email. And thank you, Donnie, for joining us. Donnie Dumont, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Gray. Today's sound engineer was Sandra Harris. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can find our past programs and sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, we talk with the Maine Department of Transportation Commissioner, Bruce Van Note, about Maine's three-year plans for road, roads and infrastructure. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.